we've been marching our way through this series entitled Coexist, Tolerance, or Love. Jesus, the light in the midst of the fog. Um, And this morning we're going to look at the church and how the church is to be a revolutionary element in the midst of the false messages and the false movements around us. Um, And it it really is right in front of us in every, um, especially New Testament book, but certainly the Old Testament as well, just the people of God being the people of God. Uh, But let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and, and verse 2. Paul writes... To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To the church of God in Corinth, the church organized, the church gathered the church structured the invisible church of God in the world. That's who Paul writes to. Not just us individually for our quiet times, but to us collectively. So let's see what that means and what the implications are for this whole message of coexist, tolerance, and all the other messages that are out there. Um, And before we do so, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need you. I feel very inadequate to bring your word this morning. And you know that. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come? Uh, You told us to rely on your spirit. You told us to trust you for the words. (laughs) And so I do that this morning. Oh God, we need your body to be your body. And there is nothing lacking in you, but there is much lacking in us. So would you come this morning and would you speak clearly clearly to us? Would May we see Jesus, may we see our sin, may we see His grace and His love, and may we be determined to be the people of God. Oh Father, I can't possibly know what's going on in the hearts and minds and the lives of those in this room, but you do because they're yours. So God, would you come? Would you minister to us by your Spirit? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure you saw the video and you heard the hype this week. Uh, The mob of teenagers moved into the Kroger parking lot at Poplar at Highland. Uh, As a Kroger employee was getting out of his car, they mugged him, beat him up. As two other employees came out to try to help, they beat them up. And then they moved on down the road and went into a convenience store and just took candy bars and just did whatever they wanted, wanted to do. Uh, I was listening to a talk show for a split second this week, and um, this pastor called in to this commentator, and I I don't listen to talk radio much at all, but I did hear uh, a bit of this, so I don't even know what station I was listening to or who the uh, host was, but a pastor called in and said, this is really just a call for us um, to to get engaged with the youth, youth of our city. There are tons of great nonprofits, and we need to engage with the youth of our city. 
uh, and then he hung up and the commentator said, you know, I really appreciate the sentiment of, of this caller. Uh, I appreciate this positive message, but I'm a realist and I don't have time for that. Uh, I'm a realist and, and I can barely take care of my own children. And what I thought about that, that exchange was this. That was the collision of the two realities that exist in this world. You see, the world says, I'm going to get mine now because now is all I have. I'm going to get mine now because there's nothing beyond now. Or maybe I'll do a little, you know, a little service project every now and then because, you know, maybe that'll give me some good karma in my life. Or, you know, if there's a God, you know, maybe that'll be enough to kind of get his attention and show him I'm a good person or at least convince me that I'm a good person. But the Christian reality is radically different. The Christian reality is defined by the Word of God, and it said Christ has lived, Christ died, Christ rose again, Christ is coming back for us, and Christ will make all things new. You see, one says, i got to get mine now, and the other says, mine's coming in the future. One says, I've I, I got to live for today and I can't let go. I've got to control everything. I've got to manipulate. I, I, I've got to do the best I can. I've got to get the most pleasure out of this life that I can because there's really no promise of anything beyond this world. But the Christian says, no, my, this world is very important, but my ultimate hope is not this world. It's the world to come. And so I can let go of everything. And I can sacrifice. And I can die. As we saw last week, love is a superior message to the messages of coexist and tolerance and live and let live precisely because love is the very essence of God. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the reason that love is a superior power is because love, and we haven't done this very well, church, but God love, Christian love, says, I'm going to speak truth to you, but I'm not going to leave your side. I'm going to speak truth to you as a fellow sinner because I fall and I'm messed up and my hope is not me, but my hope is in the performance of Christ Jesus. The one who has lived under the law for me. So I'm not arrogant towards you, but I, I've got to speak the truth to you because I love you. And we talked about how a, um, it's not loving for a parent to let their five-year-old run into the street, even if that five-year-old believes with all that they are, that running into the street is the thing that's going to bring them the most pleasure and the most satisfaction in the moment. And so we must be an element of truth, believing that we've received truth from God, and we must lovingly speak truth, but then stand with and live with and love alongside those in the world. It's a superior message. That's why Paul lifts up the great love chapter to a people that are living in a a church that, that is being Corinthianized, if you will, uh, because the church is believing the, the world and, and they're beginning to, to kind of uh, move over and say, you know what, I'm going to do what makes me happy too. You know, I'm going to profess Christ verbally, but I'm going to live because i got to get my life too, because who knows, I mean, this whole thing may not be real. And so Paul <clears throat> lifts up love in the most extensive way in 1 Corinthians 13, And he shows love to be the very essence of the Christian life. 
And he counters this, um, or he's countering a very sexualized culture. And it's brilliant what he's doing here because love empties of self and lives for God and others. But one who is uh, consumed with his own sex drive and meeting his own uh, sexual needs to the point of redefining sexuality and what is right and wrong in the world is completely centered on self. And so Paul exalts love because without love there is no virtue. Because you're only being governed by what makes you happy in the moment. But then, Paul goes on in chapter 15. He doesn't just give us the love chapter in in chapter 13, but we're going to move a little bit beyond that this week and say he's also given us the resurrection chapter. Now, why did he do that? Because one who is captivated by the love of God, one who understands the gospel that I'm a sinner, but in the midst of my sin, Christ died for me to reconcile me to God, and now I have the very love of God, still has to go out and live a sacrificial, loving life. And so how do we do that? There is more power to do that because we have hope. And it's called the resurrection. A love that Paul put in the resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians, and I love how he argues for a morality based on the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 30 through 32, we read this. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. He's saying, guys, I've given my my life to you. But what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Some of us, or some in the world, might push off Christianity on us thinking that, you know, just have some fire insurance. Just, you know, I mean, go ahead and believe, because who knows? And Paul is saying, that is intellectually stupid. If Christ was not literally raised from the dead, you're still in your sins and there's no hope of sin being forgiven and there's no hope of glory. So at least go out in a flame of, of, of pleasure. <laughs> at least go out with a beer in one hand, some vodka in the other. I mean, why sacrifice for anybody? There is absolutely no rational ground for morality unless Christ Jesus was raised from the dead and he has conquered death and we believers will one day conquer death too through him. That is the Christian reality. And so what Paul is saying is, if Christ has been raised, we have a different reality and we must live that reality. Our lives are now hidden with Christ and God. So I don't have to get life. I already have life. Now friends, one person that believes that reality is dangerous to his own context. But 300 people that believe that as their ultimate reality is revolutionary in a city. Do you hear me? One person that believes that is going to impact their own little context that God has placed them in. But 300 people that believe that 
is a revolutionary force that will overcome a city. That's called the church. (laughs) Do you see God's design? Paul writes to the church of God that is in Corinth. Remember who you are to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Those who are servants of Christ, who have been washed in His blood, the church of God in Christ, come together and be the church in the culture. Because when you are, you are a revolutionary force. And so how can we be a revolutionary force in Memphis, Tennessee and beyond? As we look at the themes and we look at the issues in Corinthians, we can gather some things and we can learn some things. Here's number one. To be a revolutionary force in Memphis, we have to define Christian advancement, Christian success, Christian maturity as going down, not up. We have to value emptying ourselves of pride and arrogance and the need for recognition more than being recognized, exalted, and noticed. This past Wednesday night, I gathered with um, five or six of our members to, to launch a missions team, our first international missions team. And... Um, I know that some of you in this room right now are saying, how come I wasn't invited? And I love that. And I'll tell you why I love that in just a second. Um, We went around the table and I asked those that were present why they were passionate about international missions. And by the time we made it back to me, I was so excited. Because what we've been doing the last four years is building a body, planting a church that could bless a city and the world. But the world is kind of, I mean, we've sent the ingers, we, you know, we've, we've done some things, but, but we've really kind of been moving toward this point where we can really launch the world. And what excites me about the fact that I knew when I mentioned that I started a missions team that some would, would, would and I, not selfishly, but, well, maybe selfishly, but uh, to some extent say, man, I wish I could be a part of that, is because I really believe that's the DNA of so many in this body. We want to give ourselves away. We want to go. I'm so amazed that we're going to have 16 in our little body, 16 different nonprofits represented here tonight. You guys are giving yourselves away. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's not just those that are in the nonprofits doing that. What's exciting to me about that is it smells so much like Jesus. Our denomination has a missions initiative right now called Engage 2025. It, its goal, our denominational goal, is to plant 10 churches in Muslim uh, unengaged or unreached um, areas of the world by 2025. 10 different churches. And um, each presbytery, which is a geographical region of churches, like churches, are to come together and identify an area and strategize how to reach that area and then send people to go plant that church. Is that not cool? It's cool 
if you believe in Jesus. <laughs> it's cool if your reality is Christ lived, Christ died, Christ rose again, Christ is coming back to make all things new. Greg Livingston is the head of this initiative, and there's a video that he produced to, to advertise it and promote it. And he said, he, he, at one point in the video, he said, you know, people ask me, why aren't we going somewhere safer? I mean, isn't this a little risky? And this is what he said. He said, that is not a New Testament question. Why is that not a New Testament question? Because God himself came down, took on flesh, launched into ministry, was rejected by men, and died homeless, falsely accused, and executed, unjustly executed on a cross publicly. And if that's how... If that's how our Lord was treated, why do we think we deserve any better than that? You see, that's, that's what happens to somebody that believes Christ lived, Christ died, Christ rose again, Christ is coming back for me to make all things new. Is that your reality? The mature Christian says, I have no rights, I deserve nothing. We're in the process of identifying elders and deacons and deaconesses in this body. The kinds of people that we want to, to, to approach as elders, uh, the kind of people that we want to be leading us in service and laying our lives down are the kind of people that are going to first react, what, me? I think that's what Paul is getting at when um, he speaks in 1 Corinthians 4, 9-13. Listen, For I think that God has exhibited us, uh, exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled we bless. When persecuted we endure. When slandered we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world. The refuse of all things. Christian maturity is the ability to die to self. It's the ability to not need to be recognized. And so if we are going to be a revolutionary force in this world, then your leaders must view themselves as the scum of the world and deserving nothing. And that can't just be some cool thing that we blog or that some cool thing that we Facebook. It has to be the reality of our lives. Because if it's not, then it's going to become a show. If it's not, it's just going to become words with no power. We have to have leaders who are willing to stand up and say the hard things and do the hard things with no recognition and no praise. That's first. We value advancement going down, not up. Secondly, Christians are gifted by God to bless and serve others. 
If we're going to be a church that is a, a, a radical, revolutionary element in Memphis, Tennessee and beyond, then we have to understand that we are gifted by God for the good of others. I saw a CNN report this week on the two doctors, Christian doctors, that um, contracted Ebola, Ebola and doing their, their work in Africa. And the mission, they're, they're both from the same mission agency, and the mission director was talking on the video, and he was talking about how they refused, when, when, the, when the epidemic broke out, they refused to leave. And the only reason we know their names today is because CNN picked up the story. Isn't that beautiful? Because they said, here's the need, my life is in danger, but I stay. Why? Because Christ lived, Christ died, Christ rose again, this world is not my hope, the feast is coming. It's a reality. It's not just words, it is a living reality. And here's the living reality for you and me. I, I used to say, I remember my pastor giving these kind of dramatic illustrations, and, and I would sit there in high school after becoming a Christian thinking, oh man, what would I do? I remember one illustration used of, you know, somebody rushing into the house saying, you know, stand with guns, saying, stand up if you love Jesus and know you're going to get shot. I went, man, would I do that? Would I do that? And I always fear when I give illustrations like this, you know, a bullet, everybody's kind of going, man, would I do that? Would I do that? Here's the reality. Every community has numerous epidemics because we live in a fallen world. Let me just list a few in our city. (laughs) How about joblessness? How about illiteracy? How about fatherlessness? How about racism? How about classism? How about a justice system that is weighted heavily toward those who can afford representation in court? I could go on and on and on. We have systemic, epidemic-type results of the fall going on right now in our city. Do you even know about them? Much less are you engaged with them. Do you see it? Many of you are, and that's a great thing. You see, when we as a church preach a message of power, but we don't live a powerful life of service and dying, we show the world that we really don't believe that we have a message of power. That's what Paul is saying in chapter 4, 1 Corinthians, verses 19 through 20. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people among you, but their power. Listen to this, I love it. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What he's saying is that what we're doing right now, this is not power unless it sparks a flame in us and the city begins to feel it. You see, what was going on is that uh, there were people saying, well, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of, I'm of Cephas, well, I'm of Christ. Uh, they, they were uh, basically dividing over their leader because they needed, they were so insecure that they needed somebody uh, sexy to lead them and represent them and make them feel good about them. Oh, we have Tim Keller as our guy. You know, oh, we have Mark Driscoll. We have Matt Chandler. We have... 
You see, we want somebody to represent us, but the Christian says, now wait a minute. I am united to Christ Jesus. I don't need any man on this earth to make me feel any better about myself. And my leader must, must see himself as the scum of the world. That's what Paul said. <laughs> because I am in Christ. And because He has acknowledged me from all eternity. Because His love has been directed to me that I need no one on this earth but Him. So what is the power that Paul is referring to. It is power to live without recognition and pride by association. The gospel frees us for this. You see, the gospel makes it a radically, um, a radical community of humble people. Now, what is humility? Humility is not thinking of yourself less, but thinking less of yourself. You see, mobs are fueled by the power of we've been oppressed, we've been overlooked, we're not taking any more, I'm going to get what's mine. But a Christian church, the church of Jesus Christ says, I have no rights. I've been oppressed and that's what I deserve. (laughs) I've been overlooked and why wouldn't I be? Because Christ is the only one who needs attention. Do you see? Now I'm not speaking against standing up for justice. But hear what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we don't stand up and say we deserve better because we know we don't. And that's the kind of mob we need in the world. This is the solution for Memphis. When we understand the epidemic of racism and how we as a church have just stood by And we've tolerated being an all-white church or an all-black church. When we, when we realize that we have, have promoted and we are guilty of, of, of really feeding and fueling racism and classism by even using the Bible to justify having an all-white church or an all-black church. Until we deconstruct that and begin to say, now wait a minute, isn't Christ the one that should define me? Not my culture, not my race, not my musical preferences, not anything other than Christ. And if that is true, then can't we do life together and figure it out from there? Until we do that, we're going to be powerless in this city. Because prejudice grows in the vial of segregation. Prejudice grows in the vial of segregation. And until we realize that Christ is big enough to make us one, we're going to continue just to keep that lie going. God has blessed us that we might bless somebody else. This is Paul's whole grounds for his talk about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. Listen to this. But as it is, God has arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body... 
that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And on our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, that the members may have the same care one for another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Here's the problem of only doing life with people who all make the same kind of money as you and all have the, drive the same kind of cars as you and all wear the same kind of clothes with you. You begin to think that God blesses you because of that or God should bless you because of that. If you're resourced, if you're middle to upper class, you think, well, God has blessed us, look at us. When in fact, you're just one part of the body. And if you are under-resourced, if, if you live in poverty and you think God owes you something and, and we, have a, uh, we have a better, uh, uh, you know, we're closer to God because we are lower, then you begin to have a different kind of arrogance and you need to be around the middle class and upper class. You need to be around the parts of the body. That's why God has arranged it where we're all to do life together. Because when one is suffering, we all say, then we're suffering too. That's what the body of Christ looks like in a city. We run toward the suffering. We will only do that when we see that Christ has redeemed us so that we might leverage the gifts and the abilities that He's given us for the good of somebody else. I want you to know that's the, that's the primary reason why I came to, to downtown Memphis. The primary reason was because I knew that as a Memphian that I could come and I could capitalize on the relationships that I've had. And we could partner with a church that was larger, that has been here for over a hundred years and has a great reputation in the city and we could leverage even their reputation, their, their resources for the good of the weak and the oppressed. And friends, that's how we have to look at all of life. It's not, what am I going to do with my life? How am I going to get educated to build my kingdom? But it's, what has God given me and how can I bless somebody else? Because that's the reason He's given me what He's given me. That has to be our mindset if we're really going to be a revolutionary, radical community in Memphis, Tennessee. And then thirdly and finally... We have to understand that Christians are accountable to others, not merely themselves. Look, if you will, to chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It has actually been reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you are proud... Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have to put out uh, of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit, and I've already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan." so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Do you know what Paul is saying? 
Do you understand what Paul is saying? He is not saying, he's saying something radically different than coexist, tolerate, live and let live. And I think maybe this point more than my other two is going to make it the stark reality that we have to be the church and this is why. If you look at this whole reality of church discipline, which is what Paul is referring to here, this whole reality that we are to be submissive to leaders and, and, and really allow them to, uh, to have spiritual oversight of our lives, then you begin to see the church in a radically different way. The church is not just a place that we kind of run into and run out of on Sunday mornings, but the church is a place that we actually bring our lives under and say, you have authority over me spiritually. You are my spiritual parents. Now, why do we need that? So that we can stroke the egos of those above us? No. (laughs) Because those above us are not supposed to have egos. But the reason we do this is because the city will not be blessed and the nations will not be blessed unless there is a body that is that we are accountable to when we run the direction that we want to run. Because when we're running over here, living and redefining um, what is true and what is not true, any way that makes us feel happy, if there's not somebody that's going to come after us and correct us and discipline us and beg with all that we are to come back to Jesus in submission to His very clear Word, then the church is going to lose its power of love in the world. Because whereas sexual immorality was rampant in the church in Corinth, that wasn't the real sin. The real sin was the fact that they were so consumed with themselves and so consumed with meeting their own sexual desires that they didn't give a damn about anybody else. And so Jesus all of a sudden becomes this, yeah, those church people, they don't care about anybody. (laughs) They're divorcing just like the rest of us. They're sleeping around. They're living together. So why would I want Jesus? Do you see what's at stake here? And so God is so so passionate about His church being the very institution, the very organization um, that, that has structure, that has leaders, that have power over us because the gospel is so important. And friends, the church has messed that up. We've made church a business. We, we've made church anything but that. But that is God's design and may it be who we are at downtown church. May we care enough for you and may we care enough for the gospel and may you care enough for us as your leaders where we are confessing our sins to each other. We're saying, I'm accountable to you, you're accountable to me, we're all accountable to Jesus because He's our head. And there is no extreme that we will not go to to protect the image of His love and His gospel in this community. Because He is worth it. Not because we want to shame you. Do you see this? So that why, why did Paul do this? Hand this man over to Satan. Why? So that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. It's like we've, we've done everything we can do and now all we know to do is just to hand you over to your sin and say, if that's what you believe is truth, then you go live it, my friend. But please know we're here. Please know we're here. Please come back. It's exactly what the father did to the prodigal son. He let him go. And he prayed that he would come back. So friends, 
Are we going to be a radical, revolutionary community in the midst of Memphis, Tennessee in this world? The only way that's going to happen is Jesus, if Jesus is your reality today, is He? I would love for us to take the next couple of minutes and just confess our sin as we take up the offering. Just use that time, this time as a reflection, just to confess your sin, stuff that maybe has come up during this sermon. If you don't know Jesus, at the end of the service, like we always do, there'll be elders and um, our community group leaders up here just to pray with you and talk with you. If you need prayer for anything, uh, we ask you to come up after every service. But dear friends, Christ must be the reality in our lives that we might be a reality of His love and His community in this world. May it be so. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your church. We thank You that You've made us to be the very body of Christ, so may we be that better today. Oh Lord Jesus, we have failed You. We need You. I need You, Lord. We all need You, so come and do Your work among us. Holy Spirit, minister to us right now. And move us out, united together, and committed to the world around us. For the glory of Christ and the good of others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.